Released on Sunday, June 29th, 2014. This Agile Life, Episode 55. They can't all be blockbusters. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today, my one and only co-host, Amos King. I'm always here for you, John. And likewise, Amos, I am always here for you. Now if we can just get our wives to be that way with us. (laughs) And our other co-hosts, they've been slacking lately. Uh, I can't say much. I missed last week. Well, you had a very good reason. Well, thank you. (laughs) And uh, what about our friend Craig Buchek? Where's he been? Uh, well, he was in Italy. He should be back now. We should pause this recording and call him. I saw he was online. Oh, uh, we can do that. He's probably on like a plane with Wi-Fi. No, he's supposed to be back already. He was at work. Well, we'll catch up with Craig the next time. Meanwhile, let's uh, talk about a few topics tonight. First on our list, something that came up actually at the show that we did last time when we did it live with the good folks at the Agile Link. We talked about some suggestions for taking uh, your agility from good to great. And one of the topics that came up kind of tangentially was around the whole team approach. And I kind of, I asked the audience, I said, how many people had heard of the whole team approach before? And I was kind of surprised because it seemed like out of the 70 or 80 people that were there, only about 5 to 10 had heard of the whole team approach. And I thought that was kind of a critical foundational sort of principle that a lot of teams leverage. Teams that are having good success with Agile usually leverage the whole team approach, and I found it odd that so many people weren't aware, weren't familiar with the whole team approach. So I'd like to talk a little bit about whole team approach and ask you and kind of discuss with you if you think that using the whole team approach fully is really something that's attainable. What do you think? Is it is getting to the point where the whole team is really kind of interchangeable with each other? And maybe interchangeable isn't exactly the right word because I don't want to infer that we are resources because we're people and people work here. I, I think that, yes, that you can get there. It's hard. I think a lot of times that you end up with most of the team being interchangeable and like maybe one person who's still kind of in charge. That's like the person that everybody goes to with questions and and things of that nature. I think that's okay because you're always going to have, at a minimum probably, you'll have a product owner or project owner or a customer, uh, depending on what your situation is, right? And that person, or at least a person like that, will always have some sort of ultimate responsibility for prioritization of features and the clarification of what the system's supposed to do and some of those things, at least from a leadership perspective, right? Well, can you have a whole team as a product owner? I think it's possible to get to that. I think that there are a ton of projects and programs out there where people, though, are are not in that situation. But I could really see within certain places where, uh, you know, maybe you take, if you're building software for the sake of building software, like an IDE or something along those lines, or if you're, if you're building something else within kind of the domain that the people 
uh, who are building the product understand very well, I think mm-hmm. then you you can have a lot more people on the team who are then able to be product owners. And you can also maybe imbue some of the knowledge from your main product owner into the team by having the team very involved with the product owner by doing other activities where the team learns a lot about the product that they're developing and then can start to think like a user of the software would or the product owner for the the project would think and and start to make some of those decisions. Yeah, I have seen some teams get to the point where they are acting, I I would say, not necessarily as a product owner, as a team all at once, but it's kind of like it changes hands from day to day or week to week and nothing is guided that way. It's just somebody feels really passionate about something in that product at that time and it's brought up. And so that person kind of steps forward and starts talking about that and everybody's and I, I think that you end up with a better product that way because you have collaboration coming up with that final design and you don't have a funnel of one person that says, nope, this is what goes in and this doesn't. I think that you need that, but I think that it can change hands and, and that I believe helps get you to the whole team approach and it makes people more passionate when they see that they have that ability to make change within the application. I agree with you 100% on that point. I think that getting the, your your fellow coworkers on a project and on your team to all behave and act as if they owned the project themselves and they were as passionate about it as the users of the software are or as the customer who's commissioning the creation of the software are, if you can raise everyone's passion to that same level, I think you would have a really great chance at attaining a true whole team approach philosophy and execution on a team. But unfortunately, what I've run into more times than not, Amos, is a situation where we talk about the whole team approach. Everyone understands the ideas and ideals behind the whole team approach, but I don't get a lot of buy-in from the practitioners that it's a a a good idea and b something that they want to do because they feel like in certain cases it's going to take them away from the things that they really love to do. For example, a developer would say, "I don't want to test because I love developing and I want to develop and I want to be paid to develop and I don't want to test or be paid to test or to but you you mean like a like an after like running through the browser or through the application and using it, not an automated test or writing test, right? Yes, correct. I just want to make that clear because it's very overloaded. Yes, you're right. I should have made that more clear. But the, an- another example might be rather than the testing one, uh, that a developer wants to focus on development and not capturing requirements or writing user stories. I agree there that that I run into people like that, but I, I really do think it's a, a perception of power and being able to drive the application. If you can show them how getting involved in gathering requirements or writing stories allows them to guide part of the application or doing QA allows them to give feedback in a specific way and they actually see fruits out of that labor. I've seen many people who were in that position that said, I only want to be a developer, start to like jump into those other roles and be a part of them because they saw the application changing by their hand in those other roles also. So I think a lot of us as developers, just we like to create and solve problems and I think if you can show where those interesting problems are in these other areas that a lot of people just jump right in there. And 
you know, and we, we always have trust too is an issue is like, if I jump in and take on that role, am I going to be allowed for one thing? And if I do, is somebody going to come back later and try to shut, like fire me or whatever, because of the decisions that I made? Okay. But that, that could be a, a concern. I could see that if it wasn't if it wasn't explicitly made clear to someone that, yes, you have the authority, you have the right, I want you to behave this way, I want you to act as an owner, I want you to be more involved, I want you to work outside of your boundaries. So let's say that that has been laid clear or made clear to the team that we want everyone to participate as a whole team, we want people to stretch outside of their boundaries, and there's no fear that if you did a bad job writing a story that you would be fired, or if you were a, an analyst, that if you did a bad job testing a particular piece of software, you'd be Or as a fired. product owner, you decided that feature A should go in instead of feature B, and then later feature B turns out to be the, the better choice possibly. Usually it seems like those sorts of decisions are not arbitrarily arrived at by a single individual, that there's always a conversation that occurs. So well, I, I, would, hope. <laughs> I would be less concerned about that than... Well, wouldn't the, the conversation be a whole team approach? Yeah, I think it should be a whole team approach. There should be collaboration and cross-talking and, and exploration of ideas. And as long as everybody feels comfortable to speak, then we can get there as a whole team. Yes, but more than just speak, I think, and having the conversations about the prioritization of features and what's right for this release as opposed to the next release and what are we going to do this sprint and the next sprint. I'm trying to get this down to because I'm starting to feel more and more that the whole team approach in certain circumstances is not attainable. And it's the whole reason why I put it into the show tonight for us to discuss. Uh, what do you think stands in the way? People's passion to do other things and their, and their lack of interest in exploring uh, the other options. And maybe it's a fear factor. So maybe it gets back to a matter of trust. But I think that in, in all cases, it's been made clear to people that the trust is there. We, we're not, you know, it's not a matter, there's not a fear that if they would do a bad job on a particular part of whatever it is we're asking them to do, that they're going to be admonished for it. So I can't I, figure it out because it's, it's a very a disabling thing that can happen on a team when you have people that only operate in certain roles and then there's not enough work for all of the roles. Or there's too much work for a particular role and no one that can easily step in and help. And no one that feels like it's their job to step in and help without being directed and cajoled and, and kind of forced into it. I, I don't know. I feel like I don't know how to get anyone to that point. I almost feel like if you're not at that point, I just don't want to work with you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've been very blessed in the people that I've worked with and that uh, most of them have been super passionate and want to do everything because they see the benefit that, you know, I learned something and while I'm doing QA, I find out that, you know, doing this one thing over and over is kind of kludgy and I know how I need to change the UI. I help out with design. I help out with coding. I help out with everything. Like the people I've worked with have always been those kind of people that want to be all over the place and learn all kinds of things. If they didn't come into the team that way, they ended up that way shortly because I have been traditionally surrounded by teams that are very active like that. And most of the time that I see people that always say like, oh, that's their job or I don't want to do that. 
it's not just, I don't want to do that role because I really love this role. It's, I'm not even doing my role really because <laughs> I'm kind of, I just don't have the passion there. This is just an ends to a means for me. Means to an ends for me. Backwards. Sometimes, Amos, I wonder if the mere existence of the roles, the pre-existence of the roles on the teams anchors people towards that idea that, hey, I was hired in here to be a developer. You have a set of BAs. You have people that do quality assurance testing. And the, the mere existence of those roles has made it clear to me that I don't need to participate in those other capacities. I understand and, and have been in the situations that you've been in, similar situations to to what you've done, where you come into a, a project and there isn't a business analyst and there isn't a, a QA role because everybody's already doing that. So there's a different set of pre-existing conditions, which then creates a different set of expectations innately when the person starts working on the team. Yes, I find that more in large companies or companies trying to perceive themselves to be large startup type companies or, or large companies that teams act like little startups seem to not have this issue. Right. They're the whole team approach because they have to be. And a lot of them don't have big titles or anything like that. I find that the biggest thing against whole team approach is a top heavy company with lots of management. I recently had a customer who has been having letting go developers and replacing developers with managers because managers aren't doing or the, the developers aren't doing what they the management thinks that they should be able to, but they're not listening to the developer feedback of what they need to do to do their job. So they have decided that they need more management. So they let developers go so that they can afford to hire more management. That company is having a problem with whole team approach all the time. Because they have all these name positions, and I hear it every day is, oh, that's not my job. Oh, that's not my job. Ah, uh, so there you go. That's exactly the sort of thing that I deal with and have dealt with in the past in regards to whole team approach. And there's, because it's situations where it feels like it happens most commonly in situations where there was kind of a pre existing set of roles, responsibilities, and at some point, you know, everybody kind of was was this sort of a cog that fit into the machine in this sort of configuration, right? And then that was their definition for their existence. They operated as that particular cog. And it, it's, for obvious reasons, it's a lot easier if you have people that can play multiple roles, maybe maybe even develop in multiple different languages so that you can shift around. If you need to do more, uh, maybe you need to do more quality assurance work and write some automated regression tests one day. You know, having the ability to have the team swarm onto those things is a lot more necessary in certain circumstances than working on a lower priority tech debt sort of well, thing or one, feature one that's lower priority. One of the great things that happens whenever you start doing that is you can watch teams grow and change in that they stop throwing things over the wall because they know tomorrow they're going to be doing that job or in an hour they might be doing that job. So things don't get thrown over the wall as much whenever you have the team moving around and helping out in all those different roles. I think that you also get a group of people who start to feel empowered because they touch everything. 
not just a little section. They, they're all over, and they have more of a place to give feedback. As a developer, if all you ever do is write code, you're very limited in the feedback that other people around you are going to listen whenever you give it. If you go and sit down with the designers and work on UI, and you go sit with QA and work on like running things through the browser, and you go sit in the meetings with the product owners, and you start to be a part of that whole team bouncing around approach, then your opinion matters in every one of those meetings, and people listen to you a lot more. Yes. That's rewarding to me. I also think it's rewarding, but I've found that people sometimes feel like it's, in addition to be rewarding, it's more work. (laughs) (laughs) And it's different work. And maybe it's something that, that they're just not interested in. And I feel conflicted because I've started to feel like in certain circumstances, the only way that I can get people to role overload and to help out when things are falling behind in a particular area is to threaten them with mandatory overtime. Oh, no. (laughs) See, and I think that hurts the trust that we talk about. Well, go ahead. It has hurt my trust in the team. You don't think it's hurt theirs and you? you? You threaten them with something. Yeah, but I don't know if it's, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. Did they not trust me first? Or did I not trust them first? Because my reaction to threaten them comes out of the fact that I don't see them doing things on their own. So what could you do differently that's not a threat to try to try to pull them out? I could let them fail. Is that acceptable to you? No. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't like failure. Nobody does. But is a, is a small failure okay? Yes, I don't have any opportunities to allow them to fail in a small way at the moment. I'm kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. I've tried the coaching of, you know, bringing the horse all the way right up to the water, walking them through scenarios and questioning and in retrospectives and in other opportunities where we can speak candidly and transparently about the team's operation. You know, I I offer advice, I offer feedback, I offer suggestions, and hope that then they will ultimately decide that, hey, here's something we'd like to try. Let's do this. Let's try role overloading. Let's let's write more automation testing as part of our development, etc. And it just doesn't happen. What happens when you ask them what they can do to improve? Uh, They have a lot of other suggestions for improvement that has nothing to do with the whole team approach. And has more to do with creating clear boundaries and lines between the roles. So like, they can toss it over the wall. Exactly. Like put better comments into the story. <laughs> so when I get it, it's easier for me to test or develop. So I don't think that that's a bad thing, putting better comments in the story. Let's, let's fix it. We can, we've all run into those stories that say it's broken. Yeah. Or it doesn't do it. Right. <laughs> I don't know because... I I don't know, John. <laughs> it's it's um, not an easy situation, and this is the way, what you're feeling right now is the way that I have felt for, uh, in certain circumstances, for, for a significant amount of time in some cases, and it, it just feels like I've, I've reached a point where for these particular teams or projects, the whole team approach is not going to be easily attainable without significant change to the expectations, 
which ultimately probably means significant changes to the makeups of the teams right. and and also probably the people on the team. Is there is there a small piece of another role that you could get someone to start doing? It's just small, like something really tiny, and then start like just bouncing it around and slowly growing that ball like a like a snowball rolling down a mountain. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mention that because we have pockets uh, where individuals do that sort of thing. They take something on. There have been times in the past, and this is kind of funny, where someone will say, what are you doing? Hey, you're doing stuff that's not strictly within the boundaries of, of your job title. Why are you doing that? And that sounds like the government job I had. It's like the people, you know, s- stepping up and, and trying to put out the, the fires of passion that people have rather than um, encouraging have, them. Have you asked them why? Many times. And what's their answer? They have those pre-existing notions of roles and responsibilities, and, you know, this person's better at this than that person is, so therefore they should do that work. And it's all the same old answers that you hear all the time when you ask those questions. Oh, you mean Scrum? <laughs> I don't know what you mean. They read about all the roles in Scrum and decided that they were individuals <clears throat> and that's the way it has to be or it won't work. But what roles are there prescribed for you in Scrum? There's really just two, product owner and team member. Scrum master? Okay. So may- uh-huh. maybe there's three if you count Scrum master. Yeah, there's no QA role prescribed. You're right. See? I'll give you I'll give it to you. You were trying to get into prescriptive what? guidance. You were starting to channel somebody. Oh, God, don't do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it's attainable everywhere, really. I, it might take time and some pushing, but I think if you push too much, you become a boss. So I think you have to find creative ways to push that don't necessarily feel like you're forcing. I think that threatening with overtime is is not a good one. Right. I don't think that's a, I mean, I don't like doing that any more than you probably would if if you were in my situation. But the options available to me are limited and pressures are severe and the expectations are high. So that's where I always see this. This is the too busy to improve, I think, is I see in position where expectations are high and you have a lot of downward pressure from some upper level of company ownership or something that is expecting something out of you so much so that you're afraid to let the team fail or, or grow on their own. And then you want to force them into this mold. Okay. Uh, I could see where you would, you would uh, get to that point in your, in your analysis of this, but there have been opportunities in the past for failure, reasonable failure without having to swoop in and try and do something to save the team. And it's just all coalesced to a point where, you know, you, you ultimately have things in, in every project where they just have to get done. I mean, I, I don't live by the uh, belief that I'm never going to have deadlines and that I'm, you know, that we're never going to have to do things that are slightly less agile to make sure we get stuff done. I, there's just certain realities that occur in life that prevent that from occurring, right? Well, I, I think that if your team's all completely bought in and working, that the agile works and it doesn't slow you down. Right, it speeds you up, but yeah, yeah. But, in the growth phase of trying to create an agile team, yeah, you might. But I think every time you make one of those concessions, you tell everybody else on your team that it's okay to make one of those concessions, and then they make them all the time because it's easy to go back to how they were. Because you are, they watch you make the concessions, so why not them? 
That's a valid point. I think that there are some circumstances where you just are not going to be able to really attain full full implementation of whole team approach. You'll have to settle for some somewhere in between. Just with anything in life, there's the ideal and the idea of, of something in its truest form, and then there's what you can what you can reasonably attain. And I think that you know with your current time budget and people, yeah, and just life situations. And that you have to sometimes pick where you fight your battles. But knowing that every time, like you said, Amos, that there's a an acknowledgement that we didn't do something that we should have done, that's giving back, giving in. Especially on, on if ideals. it doesn't appear to be a failure. Like if you give in on the ideals and then at the end of whatever time period that came out to be a failure, then people are more likely to say, yeah, maybe we should have stuck with that. I've seen that with TDD a lot. Like, people are doing TDD for a while, and they're like, I'm not going to this. I'm in a rush on this one thing, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not practiced enough. Let's just get this out there. And then that's the feature that breaks in production next week. And interestingly enough, one of the things, one of the forces that I think affects our abilities here is the time window within which you feel the pain. So if I make, it's that whole risk, uh, reward, or the consequences of my actions, like with smoking, right? What's the the risk of smoking? Well, it's developing some sort of life-threatening disease, but probably in 20 or 30 years. Right, so, so you don't think of it now. Yeah, yeah. Or, or if I eat this, if I eat this big greasy cheeseburger and chocolate milkshake now, what's the risk? Maybe heart disease and a and a fat ass, but not right now. <laughs> not not immediately, right? Immediately, I feel great because I did the thing, or I avoided a thing that I didn't want to do. When do I feel the pain? And it's important to associate that pain as closely to the behavior as possible. Just like when you're raising a child <laughs> or <laughs> training a dog. Right? You, you can't you can't break the dog from peeing in the kitchen if you scold the dog thirty minutes after the dog has peed in the kitchen. And I'm not oh, I'm not trying I, to make it seem like I always wait seven days before I tell my kids they did something wrong at the end of the sprint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to make it sound like training dogs is the same as growing a team or improvement on a team. But I'm just trying to point out that there's psychological things here that are happening that prevent people from making the association with a behavior to a negative outcome or to a positive outcome if that outcome doesn't doesn't happen in close proximity to when the behavior happens. So I still think that you can get to the whole team with anybody. I think that the amount of time that you want to get to the whole team may not be the amount of time that it's going to take. Well, and that's the key here, right? It's a matter of how long and how much effort, how much money can you pour into getting there? Right. So find that one guy on your team that wants to be a part of another role and reward him for it and make sure everybody else sees that reward. I think that's excellent advice. I've been thinking it over the whole time we've been talking. And I think that's where I've gotten to is that I, I really don't like the overtime, the like threat of to the people. I think that that breaks down the trust that is really important in a whole team. So I think the better would be reward the people who are doing that and encourage them and help them do it. Do everything you can, even if you end up having to work some hours that they don't know that you're there. (laughs) 
All right, so we'll let that be the final word on our discussion of whole team approach. And let's move into a second discussion topic, Amos, since we still have some more time here. But let's talk about what you do to deal with what I'm going to call legacy code. And the definition for legacy code will be the following. Code that doesn't have tests around it and um, possibly including code that you had nothing to do with or code that was previously created and not following your current best-in-practice standards for development on the team. So that's a pretty broad, generalized definition for the code that we're talking about. But I'll throw it to you, Amos. What are your thoughts around this? It seems like we've all had to deal with this sort of stuff in the past, some code that has existed before us or was written before we started understanding how to go about doing test-driven development or... We didn't know a lot about maybe object-oriented development at some point. And so we have this code that's maybe just kind of crap stacked on top of crap stacked on top of more crap and held together with, like, duct tape and bailing wire and string <laughs> and spit and used gum, right? What do you? What have you seen uh, there? Does it work? If it works, don't touch it. I don't know. Don't touch it. That's the problem. That's the problem with that code, right? You're afraid to touch it. <laughs> right. So um, one, one of the things that I try to do is start with a really high-level integration test, as high as I can get in the application, and say, okay, here's the, the functionality that we want. Let's go ahead and write a test around that when I'm going to change it. Other than that, I stay out of it. Unless I'm just trying to explore code, sometimes I will create tests to explore code and write a test for what it actually, or what I think it's doing, and then adjust that test to work at a very high level, not normally at like a unit level test. That's my inroads to start testing it and breaking it out, and I only test things as I have to touch them. It's often pretty impossible to go back and test the entire app and be confident that you're testing what it should be doing and not what it does do. Right, because yeah, that's the big fear. That's where I run into a lot of things. Is there's I find something and I'm like, wow, this is this is strange. I'm surprised it's doing this, and I would wrap a test around it. This is when I, the first real legacy project I dealt with, and I wrapped a bunch of tests around a bunch of things, and then found out like two or three days later when somebody was reading through the test, they were like, this is not what it's supposed to do. So I guess there was benefit there, but I spent a lot of time for stuff that they ended up just throwing it all out. And that was kind of depressing. So then I just started only doing it in the code that I touch. But, you know, you talked about current best practices and your thoughts. And I kind of believe that you ha there, there's always three um, what I call architectures or designs within your application. You have the old one, the current best practice, and then maybe some inroads of like the next one. So the you, emerging architecture. The emerging architecture, because everything's going to grow, and it's going to get better over time. And I've I've had some discussions with, with Craig, actually. We talked about him earlier tonight about this. Let's say that you have a system that has a bunch of reports, right? Let's say it, you, we're just going to pick a giant number that's obnoxious. There's 100 reports, and they're all written in the same way, and it's really bad. And every time you have to add a new report, it's painful to add. And you know that there's a better way. I say add that new one in the right way. If you have to go back and fix one of those old ones, fix it and make it in the, the new way, the right way, whatever. But all the ones that you don't have to touch, just leave them. That's one strategy. And uh, Craig's strategy. Oh, go ahead. You uh, might have Craig's strategy. No, I, I was just going to 
point out for our listeners that that's a strategy. That's a strategy where you kind of, you take the police tape and you wrap the police tape around that particular part of the code and you say, hey, nobody goes in here unless we all agree that we need to go in there because it's a mess and it's a crime scene. And what we're going to start to do is pluck out things as we can and say, okay, we need to create a new something like this or something similar. So we're going right. to pluck it out. We're going to say it's a new, it follows our new standards, our new best practices. And we're going to slowly whittle this down to the point where we no longer need to make changes to it. And like you said, we can just leave it alone. You've moved out as much of the stuff as you can without causing distress to the project or the team. So that's one strategy. Okay. Uh, the other strategy, one of them that I've heard is you come in and when you go to write that new one, you know the better way, you should rewrite all of them that way. And I agree when you have three or four things in your system that way, but I'm talking a hundred reports. Right. If we're going to rewrite all of them, it's going to take two months, let's say. I don't know. Some obnoxiously large amount of time that you don't have. We've already talked about time being an issue tonight. So... The strategy that says continue to do it the same way until you have time to fix all of them, I've heard the argument for that is that for maintenance and understanding. Somebody can come into the code, and if they know how one of them works, they know how all of them work. So it's easy for them to go through and work on it. Easy may not be the right word, but they at least know how things are laid out. And that's where I go back to the three architectures, is that hopefully in the re-architecting of the new way, I've reduced some of the amount of code and duplication. So if we do need to make a change in the future that I can at least change those and still leave the really old ones that never get touched. Maybe the first report you ever wrote is still there and never has changed in five years. It's probably not going to. Why rewrite it? Right. He's likely to introduce a bug that you missed anyway. When you take the option of, we've identified that we're going to now start doing the creation of the reports, we're going to do like this, right? You said... What we're going to do is we know that this is a better way to do it. Therefore, we're going to go back and retrofit everything. Kind of a nuclear option. Blow it all up and rebuild them all. What's your, right. what's your approach? You mentioned how you put an, in, like an integration level test or a, a high level test over the top of things to make sure that you're, you're not going to break existing functionality or you're not going to severely harm the code base. So when you take this sort of nuclear approach or the more invasive approach where you're going to go in and blow them all up and create them as new, how do you do that so that you can maintain continuity within the code and continuous deployment, continuous uh, releasing of working software? That's where I have the problem with going back and changing all of them is because each one of those, let's assume that this is a legacy project you said has no tests. So there's no tests there. So you need to, each one of those reports, you have to wrap an integration test around it. Notoriously, reports are a pain to, to test. They take a lot of data and you need a lot of different scenarios in order to actually test them well. So you've got to do each one of these. You, you have to write that up and then start working your way down. And we said rewrite, blow up and rewrite. I really do think that you got to try to find the small spots and slowly refactor it with tests to that new design, but you, you can direct that design with your tests that way once you've already got things in place at that top level. And that's really the cool, the cool challenge with working with something like that. When you start to take it from the legacy code and you transform it into a better design, a cleaner design, a simpler design, that's what's really cool and fun is to see it go from bad to better, right? And you test it and, uh, 
you start doing things like using mocks and better object-oriented principles and mocking data out rather than having to rely on data to be loaded into like a database or a data store or something like that. And it's interesting because these are a, there's a number of principles or approaches that have been outlined in a book called Working Effectively with Legacy Code by Michael Feathers. And you've already mentioned a number of the tactics that Michael Feathers has in that book putting a high-level integration test around the part of the, the application that you're dealing with is one of those approaches. And then finding seams or cordoning off parts of the system and saying, you know, we're going to replace this part of the system with some sort of a, a proxy or a stub so that, you know, you can you can get at it and do things and manipulate it and, and test it and then migrate things away from that part of the system onto the new, the new design or the new emerging architecture for the system. Yeah, that's a fantastic book, too. I think that I wish you hadn't said it because I would make it my pick, but now you can make it yours. I already made it. My, <laughs> I already slyly made it my pick when you were looking the other direction. So, Oh, I didn't see that. That's good. I, I leave that document hidden because otherwise when you start typing, I get sidetracked. It's chock full of great information for helping teams and people work with Again, that using that definition for legacy code, stuff that isn't wasn't developed test first. Because when you have that, we as we all know, for those of us that have, have developed test first, you, there are certain things that kind of happen more naturally or more easily, like using mocks and better object-oriented principles, dependency injection, and, and things along those lines, because those practices actually make it easier for you to write tests and test code. So there's, there's a, a natural chain of events or sequence of events and, and good engineering practices that enable test-driven development that make the code cleaner overall. Absolutely. I also think that there's one thing that in working with legacy code that, you know, you get caught up in the frustration of working with it. You know, it's it's hard. It's difficult. And sometimes difficult to reason through and figure out what's going on. It's very rewarding, as you've said, as you improve it. But make sure that whenever you look at code, legacy code, Ask yourself why. Why was this decision made? And try to truly understand what was going on because you might be missing something. It's easy to say we want to change this. We want to rip it out. We want to do something completely different. But always make sure you ask yourself why. I would uh, encourage you to ask yourself why with a test. Write that would be fantastic. A, if you can, write a test that asks that question and then answers it so that your creating code within the system that both asks the question and answers it so that people that come after you will see your question and see the answer. Absolutely. Of course, it's not always simple with legacy code because you, you may not have an easy way to get in there, but oftentimes you can do it kind of at an API level or uh, at a user interaction level to at least propose what it is you're looking into and then and then finding the answer through delving into the code more deeply and, and starting to peel that onion back and maybe start to find where those layers are, where those seams are that you can get in there and start to do things and manipulate things and, and then write more tests. And you can learn an awful lot writing those high-level integration tests where you have to build lots of data and figure out how the system all connects things together. I think, actually, we were use the example of reports. Reports are out of the system are a great way to figure out how everything hooks together in that system. Reports themselves tend to tell stories. They try to convey a certain certain information, and as, as they're conveying that information, they're kind of telling a story about the system, and they're telling you what's important 
from a data perspective about the system and, and how people use the data from the system. So reports are very rich with information about the why things are the way they are within a system. What's difficult and what you alluded to earlier and, and clearly said was, was difficult is how do you avoid the eventuality of testing what the system does today rather than what it was supposed to do? Right. Yeah. And that's, that's hard if the company is like, if it's older and people have moved on from it, there may not be anyone who knows what it was supposed to do. There may not be any documentation of what it was supposed to do. So the only thing that you have to go by is what it does do. If you can't get back to that, it's lost. It's kind of a, some lost information. But if it's not doing that, is it really important what the intention was? at the time it was written, or isn't it just important that we understand what is it doing now? One of the things that I do whenever I run into this situation is put some kind of reporting within the application that tells me every time that feature that I'm questioning is even used. And you may find out that it doesn't matter because it's never used. And if it's used all the time, it doesn't matter what the original intention is. Like you said, it's what it's doing now that people are using. So you need to solidify that. Well, in both those cases, you said it doesn't matter. Well, one of them, you get to just delete it, and you don't have to worry about writing a test for it. Just get rid of it. Nobody's using it. The other one, which is fun. As much as I love to write code, deleting code is a very satisfying ordeal. I love deleting code. That's my favorite (laughs) thing to do. Um, Especially when it's code that I wrote like four years ago, and I'm sad about it. I love deleting it. Um, The other says oh no, people are using this all over and we know we want to touch this piece that's going to affect it. So now I actually have to find out exactly what it's doing and dig down to the bottom of it with tests. But why? Why do you need to figure out what it was supposed to do? Because not what it's supposed to do, what it is doing. Oh, what it is doing. Yes. Yeah, ne- neither way does it really matter what it was supposed to do, I guess. Yeah. It, oh, well, it can. <laughs> I've seen some broken reports where people were making business decisions on stuff that just wasn't right for years. Okay. But most of the time, most features, I would say you're right. It doesn't matter what the original intention is. It matters what it does now. Yeah. I mean, if somebody came to me and said, hey, the system's broken, this thing, it's not calculating right, or this isn't working the way we intend it to. At that point, I wouldn't really care about how it's doing the wrong thing. I would just care to make it do the right thing. So the, so the root write an integration test for the right way. Yeah. And then make it do that thing, but hopefully injecting more tests to explain to someone in the future why it's doing the thing it's doing and the way it's doing it. And writing intention revealing code but and intention I, revealing method names and variable I names. Find, I find that when refactoring though, it's nice to have a test for what it currently does because it gets me to an understanding of the code to know where I need to make the change that they're asking me to make. We're in total agreement. So I will often write the test for the current behavior and then change that test after I've figured out how the system is working. I'm in total agreement with you on that point. Man, we need Tice here so that we can argue with somebody. I've done too much agreeing tonight. We tried to do a little bit of that role-playing of situations earlier. (laughs) Any other tips or pointers for our listeners in dealing with legacy code? I can't think of anything off the top of my head right now. If you do nothing else, get the Michael Feathers book. That's right. Because there's so much information in there that 
whatever you spend for the book, you will save yourself many multiples of that dollar amount in the future. And he's a really nice guy. So you should just send him some money. <laughs> yeah, I do that every day. I just sent, I just like, father's money. I just do little micro transactions of like pennies. Yeah. To Michael. Well, Feathers. just fractions of a cent. Right. Yeah. As long as you don't get that decimal place off. <laughs> it's a little program that I wrote. It shaves, <laughs> shaves off the half cents and transfers them to Michael Feathers' account. <laughs> let's wrap this up and let's do our picks, Amos. This week's hottest picks. All right, I've got two picks tonight. Hip Chat. It is made by Atlassian, but don't let that scare you away. I know Jira is crappy. Maybe Jira works for you. I can't stand Jira. But anyway, Hip Chat is it's an asynchronous team communication tool. Uh, it's like IRC, but it's got logging. If you want a private room, it won't be logged. You can turn logging off. You can have public rooms, and it, they've now added voice and video chat. Uh, you can upload files. You can add links. You can do all kinds of things with it. It's just a really cool tool, and right now it's free if you don't care about the video and the sound. So that's pretty cool. I kind of had you pegged as a base camp sort of guy. Uh, I've only used Basecamp once, and it was a long time ago. It was because a client had it. I've never actually dug into Basecamp very much. Okay. And then my last one is is some shameless self-promotion. I've got a blog post called Style Guides or Failures. I think that a lot of times we start talking about style, and we don't think about communicating anything other than, oh, I like the way this looks. Let's do it this way because I like the way it looks. And we have enough problem communicating intention through our code. So I want to change the name of it to a communication guide. And I want the intention that you're thinking about to be, how can I make every character of my code communicate better? Good. And people can find the link to Amos's recent blog post on his website, dirtyinformation.com. And you can find the link to the article in our show notes. All right, my picks tonight, one I already gave away, Working Effectively with Legacy Code, the book by Michael Feathers. I've got a link to Amazon so you can pick that up. If you don't already have it, I strongly encourage you to pick that book up and thumb through it. I'm sure you'll find a few things that are beneficial to you. My second pick is a new television show that I found, I guess, a couple of weeks ago. It's called Halt and Catch Fire. And it's on AMC. I don't know the date and the time, but I have the link to the show page in the show notes. And it's a really fun television show about a group of engineers in the 80s that are trying to build a revolutionary personal computer. And it's during the height of Apple and IBM. It's set in that time. It's set in that landscape with IBM and with Apple. And it's this little electronic company that's trying to branch out and build build this portable computer and it's i think it's in its fourth uh fourth episode at this point and it's really interesting and it's a fun little show so check that out and my last John, do you have do yeah. you have amazon prime oh yeah if you like that show i think there's a there's a show that you might like called betas which is about a phone app startup company in san francisco right now and it's only available on amazon prime i don't know i think it's only available on amazon prime so it's like a series that's funded by Amazon directly. Yep, released in 2013 on Amazon Instant Video. There you go. Betas. You should add that as another pick into your right. uh, your picks. I will the, add it. 
And my last pick is just kind of a, a fun one, frozen grapes. So I take red grapes, put them in a little Ziploc bag, throw them in the freezer for a couple of hours, and it's a great healthy snack to help you cool off during the summertime. And I just thought I'd share that with everyone because I like them so much. So try that out. All right, that's all we have time for today. Check out thisagilelife.com for these show notes and for all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening, and keep living this agile life. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.